The following program is a special presentation of the Big Ten Network, produced in association with the University of Iowa. Coming up in this episode, advancing our knowledge of floods, designing for the developing world, practical planning for livable communities, and copyrights versus creativity, next on Iowa Magazine. recorded history, the state of Iowa has lived with floods, but the events of June 2008 showed there were still many gaps in our knowledge, activities, and organization. Given this history and knowing the impact floods have, how can we learn to live with flooding? In 2009, the Iowa Flood Center was created at the University of Iowa to address this central question. The flood of 2008 caused tremendous physical damage, but spurred many new research projects at the University of Iowa campus. This focused scientific effort, coupled with public interest in flooding, led to the creation of the Iowa Flood Center at one of UI's most well-known institutes, IIHR Hydroscience and Engineering. IIHR's expertise in hydrology and river engineering made it an ideal place for the Flood Center. IHR has been uh, very involved in river training structures and development of simple engineering methods for controlling bank erosion, bank migration, uh, sediment management at water intakes are examples of the applied engineering research that we've been involved in. Led by Dr. Vitek Krajewski, the center conducts applied research in pursuit of a more comprehensive understanding of floods, focusing in particular on the role of the drainage network. Everybody can relate to the fact that uh, wherever you put yourself in the landscape, uh, there is always a stream nearby. Only recently the computational and communication technology reached the level where accounting for that water flow in the entire drainage network in the landscape becomes you know, possible. And even you know, today, with all the supercomputers you know, that we have, it is still a computational challenge. One way the Flood Center is addressing this is through upstream basin mapping. Rainfall that causes flooding in a community is not always local. Heavy rain in remote reaches of a basin can later cause flooding far downstream. The Flood Center is mapping the upstream basins of communities vulnerable to flooding, so they can better understand the watershed that affects them. Another project that will advance flood monitoring is the Stream Stage Sensor. Currently, gauges exist on many major rivers, but are expensive and don't provide sufficient data for real-time forecasting. To supplement these river gauges, the Flood Center developed electronic sensors placed under bridges to automatically monitor and transmit the height of smaller streams. More than 2,000 bridges in Iowa could employ this system to improve public safety and provide a more accurate picture for flood forecasting. To make a good prediction of how much water is going to flow in the river, we need to know in real time what's the condition of the river. So knowing what is happening right now makes it easier to predict what is going to happen in the future. In addition to upstream basin mapping and stream stage sensors, 
Flood inundation maps use sophisticated computer models to accurately simulate the flow of water into flood-prone areas. Of course, floods will happen, that's just a fact of life, but we need to determine where the flood water is going to go. Is there going to be high-velocity flood water that could be a danger to the public? And how we can incorporate that and work with the communities to make uh, successful strategies to make sure the people are safe when floods occur. Research at the Iowa Flood Center will complement and enhance the work of federal and state agencies like the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. With the 2008 flood, everything changed. We found that we had more and more need to provide communities with information that they needed. The Flood Center is going to be of a huge benefit to Iowans over the course of the next number of years because they're going to be able to provide the type of reliable scientific information that I think communities are looking for. One such community is Palo, Iowa, statistically the town most affected in 2008, with 98% of their buildings damaged by floodwaters. When the Flood Center was uh, initiated using the resources of the river hydrologist in the University of Iowa, we thought the legislature had done a wonderful thing and we wanted to be involved with whatever they were doing. The Flood Center is working with the city of Palo to develop better watershed monitoring and will partner with other communities to cultivate a greater public understanding and appreciation for the waters running through our landscape. The term living with floods is a term that we've used quite frequently uh, during the past year. Uh, after the 2008 flood, there have been many strategies to try to mitigate uh, flooding in the future. Oftentimes those are very serious engineered solutions. We are taking a slightly different approach, knowing that we can't engineer a mitigation program that will protect us from all floods, and that there may be future floods that exceed the design uh, of those flood mitigation concepts. So we really want people living along the river to focus more on adapting to and living with floods. To learn more about the ongoing work of the Iowa Flood Center, visit iowafloodcenter.org. Coming up, design for the developing world. In the U.S., political debates reflect a high standard of living compared to some places. In developing countries like Ghana and Haiti, the most pressing issues address basic survival. Every day, more than one billion people in the world lack access to clean, safe drinking water, and more than two million die each year from waterborne disease. Given the scope of these problems, what solutions could science and technology provide? At the University of Iowa, an innovative class teaches engineering students that sometimes the simplest ideas can address the biggest problems. My name is Craig Just, and I've been at the University of Iowa for 17 years. I'm in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering in the College of Engineering. The class is open to all students, not just engineers, so we can work on multidisciplinary teams to create devices or solutions or appropriate technologies that might have applications in the developing world. 
The handheld chlorine generator device came as an idea from my 2006 offering of Design for the Developing World. An alum of our program, John Hayes, came and spoke about his travels around the world with his electrolytic chlorine generator device. And the students were so inspired by the stories he would tell that then our students decided to develop a product that they thought would fit kind of in that same design category. You take some water and some salt, put it in the device, turn a crank, and by electrolysis, it makes a, a small amount of chlorine bleach, which is essentially the same chemical that we put in our modern distributed water systems here in the United States. And so the EPA gave us another $75,000 over two years to further develop the product and to test it out in places like Ghana where we're currently working. One of the uh, first impressions you have when you arrive in Ghana in Accra, the capital city, is the only thing that reminds you of the United States there is a Holiday Inn. It's, it's very non-Western, uh, much more so than a lot of other places I've been. I'm reminded again that the world is amazingly diverse. Places in what, we're, what we call the developing world are very culturally rich. We had a town meeting there. You meet underneath the shade tree and you start talking. We asked them some questions about what they thought about their current drinking water situation, whether they thought their water was safe, whether they felt they had issues with their drinking water, and then lastly, whether or not they'd be receptive to adding something like bleach to their water so it might be uh, safer for their children. That meeting went very well, but you know, it's just like anything else, we uh, now have to build upon that. I'm fully convinced that technology is only part of the components needed to create sustainability. The village of Cabriti already has that. They're not experiencing economic woes. They don't have this whole shutdown in, you know, kind of their normal activities. So in many ways, you might consider them to be even more sustainable than we are in our supposedly developed country. I think the technology for water purification is proven. It's a matter of how to implement them in a cost-effective manner, how to implement them in a socially relevant and appropriate manner. And all of these things are what I think is really the challenge for engineers and where Engineers Without Borders is really stepping up and trying to develop that body of knowledge. It's technology, it's also training, it's also education, it's also getting the people in the village to be involved in that project for this project to be successful. The device itself is pretty simple to assemble by Western standards, but the robustness of the device uh, kind of remains to be seen. Other hurdles are, you know, how do you get enough of the devices out there to meet the real demand? So one of the things we want to be able to do is to try to find either a manufacturer or distributor, someone that can take this and then actually design it for manufacturing and then actually deliver it in country uh, in a means that would make it so, you know, not hundreds of people in the village of Cabriti could benefit, but, you know, tens of thousands of people could potentially benefit. I'm really happy that um, 
you know, I've been, been able to have all these experiences, um, especially with the university in an academic setting. You know, I've also made a lot of friends um, in a lot of different places in the world. I've been blessed to interact with some of the most influential and uh, inspired students uh, that I think have ever gone through the University of Iowa. I don't like to kind of predetermine the endpoints on a lot of these projects. I like to have that student energy bring that as much as possible. And uh, so I've learned so many things about the world from our students. Coming up, planning for livable communities. The communities of America come in all shapes and sizes, from small towns to sprawling cities. Regardless of size, rural and urban areas face similar challenges, from environmental, economic, and social issues to housing, development, and transportation. How can society address these often conflicting needs? At the University of Iowa's graduate program in urban and regional planning, students become practitioners in a field centrally concerned with enhancing the quality of life for all communities. The practice of planning integrates work in many disciplines to improve the natural, built, economic, and social environments of communities. Today's planners are concerned not only with urban growth and land use, but geographic information systems, transportation, environmental planning, and housing and community development. Professor Jerry Anthony focuses on the issue of housing and the societal impact of high housing costs in America. The decade of the 1990s, 1990 to 2000, was a decade of phenomenal economic prosperity. And so you would expect that housing would become more affordable. Yet, if you look at the numbers, if you look at census data, in 1990, about 30% of the population paid too much for housing. And in 2000, 10 years later, after all this economic prosperity, 30% of the population still paid too much for housing. So in spite of economic prosperity, housing costs were very high. Other facets of planning address our interaction with and impact on the natural environment. Professor Lucy Lorian focuses on environmental planning, a relevant topic in the agricultural state of Iowa. I think it provides for a very unique perspective on the breadbasket, the center of this, the country. What Iowa faces in terms of water quality issues, agriculture, flooding is not very different from other Midwestern states. But what we're doing here is actually central to long-term environmental quality and the productivity of the country. From housing and environmental planning to economic development and transportation, all of these issues highlight the multifaceted nature of planning. Planning is entirely interdisciplinary. So you can be an expert in housing, but you have to recognize the extent to which housing and transportation and economic development and community development all meet at the place that people actually exist and live and work. Like the rest of the U.S., the state of Iowa has many small communities. They face the same problems as cities, but on a different scale. Iowa's urban and regional planning program engages small towns in a unique service learning course called Field Problems in Planning, where students learn by doing. In a sense, uh, the, the small towns that we have in Iowa provide an ideal place in which our students can touch base with the community. Trying these things out in small towns gives them a chance to work on, on problems at issue at a scale that are appropriate to somebody that's basically a rookie in the business of becoming a planner. Iowa students haven't had to leave the campus for first-hand experience. The flood of 2008 profoundly affected the University of Iowa community, but yielded valuable lessons for those in the business of planning. 
The flood was a pretty big thing, but I think it's provided an opportunity to do some really good urban planning intervention. Flood mitigation planning has to be most central to land use development. The flood also illustrated vividly the regional aspect of urban and regional planning. The only way we can solve the problems associated with our water basin, the Cedar and the Iowa River water basins, is by adopting regional solutions. And so for our students to see that and to experience it helps them to better understand the importance of regional planning. Including flood mitigation in land use planning is one part of an increasing emphasis on overall sustainability. Planning intervention is based on the notions of efficiency, uh, environment, and equity. So sustainability is uh, the underlying theme of the urban planning profession. I use Emily, and you, I've got nothing on the land, right? So to get the market value of the land, what a good planner does is recognize that, that places aren't just structures and they're not just mortar and brick. They're people and, and they're the neighborhoods and the communities that are formed in those places. To learn more about urban and regional planning in Iowa, visit urban.uiowa.edu. Coming up, can you own a sound? Copyrights versus creativity. Hip-hop producers in the early 1980s pioneered the art of sampling from existing records. But when hip-hop went mainstream and became a lucrative industry, the practice of sampling was a target for copyright infringement lawsuits. This crackdown on sampling would profoundly affect hip-hop music. And today, the debate of copyrights versus creativity still rages. A new film produced by a University of Iowa alum and a UI scholar gets to the heart of this debate with the question, can you own a sound? Cambrew McLeod is a professor in communication studies at Iowa, focusing on popular music and the cultural impact of intellectual property laws. I was 12 years old when hip-hop first started bubbling up. Uh, in the margins of the mainstream, and I was a fan. It was just music that made total sense to me. And the fact that they were sampling from other records also made sense to me, because I was making my own little sound collages on my cheap, portable Kmart all-in-one stereo system that I got. That was a really natural way I related to the world, and that was kind of an offshoot of liking hip-hop music. And then, when my favorite artists started getting sued, that's when I started intellectualizing it. Cambrew explores the collision of copyright laws and creativity in his recent book, Freedom of Expression. So the book is about all sorts of different issues surrounding intellectual property. And so there's one chapter on hip hop sampling called Copyright Criminals, in fact. So I already had a name for the film, and I called up Ben Franzen. Atlanta-based filmmaker and UI graduate Benjamin Franzen directed the film, which lays out the issues of sampling and how lawsuits have changed the way hip-hop music is produced. Copyright Criminals tells this story by integrating sampling and collage into the film itself. The collage aesthetic of the film was, was important as a way to visualize sampling. Sampling is something that has touched us all. And so it was important for us to sample various media to make that point. 
That's really what the film is about. We wanted the subject matter of the film, which is sound collage, to be reflected in the aesthetics of the film itself. And then the third major reason why there's so much collage in our film is it actually increases our fair use argument. Fair use is a doctrine in U.S. copyright law that allows the limited use of copyrighted material without permission for non-commercial purposes like commentary, criticism, or scholarship. The filmmakers employed the fair use doctrine to sample over 100 artists. Still, there were numerous legal obstacles. The filmmakers ran into a wall when they tried to sample the music of one well-known artist. It seemed appropriate to do a little profile on George Clinton. We interviewed him and we wanted to play some of his music. Well, we went to license it through the proper channels. They said, no reason, denied, and hung up the phone on us. This was the conversation. Um, can we use uh, this George Clinton Parliament Funkadelic song? Um, he calls us back and just says, no, <laughs> no, denied, no reason, and then hangs up. The experience of getting permission to sample so many artists exposed the filmmakers firsthand to the daunting process of music licensing. We wanted to pay people and oftentimes, and the people who actually wrote the original songs wanted to be paid, but sometimes it was a company, an intermediary in the middle that um, nixed the deal. And that just doesn't seem like a reasonable way to run an industry. Although the film was challenging to produce, the goal of the filmmakers is not to persuade viewers one way or the other in the sampling debate. We made this film not for hip-hop fans, although fortunately a lot of hip-hop fans have contacted us and said they really liked it. We wanted to use the subject of sampling in hip-hop as a jumping-off point to start a conversation. Technology and creativity is advancing at a drastic rate, and the law is stuck in 1976. And that's, that's a problem for, for music and for people that are creating in a way that technology is promoting. It's an increasingly natural way people relate to the world, and the law needs to recognize that. To learn more about the film and the issues of copyrights and creativity, visit copyrightcriminals.com. The preceding program was produced by the University of Iowa in association with the Big Ten Network.